Hello, and welcome to Worst Church Ever. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, welcome back. And if you're a first-time visitor to our virtual pews, welcome to you as well. Also, welcome to visitors that we've logged from Russia, Austria, and Germany in recent weeks. So welcome to everybody, and thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is a bonus episode, but it's also an outtake. And it's an outtake because... I was trying some new recording um, uh, software, and I didn't realize how very sensitive the microphone was, and so it picked up a lot of background noise, and I do apologize for that. So consider this uh, an outtake, not quite um, the audio that I'd like it to be, but the meat of the segment, or the meat of the episode, is perfectly uh, audible nonetheless. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope that you have a great day. Hello and welcome back to Worst Church Ever, the world's worst Christian podcast. We're that progressive Christian podcast that is not at this week's annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, nor do we wish to be a fly on any of those particular walls. Sometimes we forget that the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, but it's certainly not representative of uh, other kinds of Protestant denominations. Um, When we think about Protestant denominations in in the United States, once you move past the Baptist denominations, of which there are quite a few, and there are many independent Baptist bodies and so on, but you get into the historic mainline uh, congregational settings, the Presbyterian Church, the United Church of Christ, the Methodist Church, and so on. And it's interesting to see how the main line on one side and churches like the Southern Baptist Convention on the other um, are sort of known in public for different kinds of witnesses. The Southern Baptist Convention since the late 70s has been known as quite the conservative group. And the main line has often been criticized by evangelicals and fundamentalists for embracing the social gospel and teachings about social justice and not focusing on that old-time religion in my soul. So the public discourse, at least since the 1970s, uh, that has the adjective Christian attached to it, does seem very much to be dominated by evangelicals and fundamentalists, whereas the public witness of the mainline churches for 70 years in the 20th century prior had been the sort of progressive witness um, and was stood in the tradition of the social gospel and was really an inheritor, if you want to think about it, of movements like abolition and women's suffrage, both of which were started by progressive Christians in the 19th century. And so, as you may or may not know, in the, at the dawn of the 20th century, we get the development of what we call fundamentalism. And so now we have a misnomer that I want to talk about in this bonus episode. And that misnomer is the word conservative or uh, theological conservatism as such. I was reading this article about the Southern Baptist Convention's yearly meeting, which is happening this week in Nashville, and they're going to pick a new president, and I believe that president will be elected or appointed or whatever their terminology is for the next two years. And if you've been following 
sort of the bits and pieces coming out of the SBC, you know that there are all kinds of things that are on the table this week. They have done a very poor job dealing with sex abuse scandals, as have most other churches, um, which is not an excuse, but it's just one of the things that they are wrestling with this week. And if you know anything about fundamentalist or evangelical settings, you know that there's always this shroud of protection around people in power. And it's almost as if organizations like these worship power and worship the power structures that give uh, their elites the power, uh, rather than uh, worshiping the marginalized Palestinian Jew that we know as Jesus, who had no power. And in fact, if we take Philippians chapter 2 seriously, we know uh, he emptied himself of his power and forsook the glories of heaven to put on this darksome clay. Now, I took that from John Milton, but it's basically what's being said in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. So we have quite the contrast. You know that all organizations, be they conservative or progressive, have a tendency to want to do nothing more at the end of the day than perpetuate their own survival, and they will protect their power structures and their powerful people from outside threat, even if the threat is warranted, even if the threat is not a threat at all, even if the threat is, in fact, just a simple pursuit of justice. So that's been a problem for the Southern Baptist Convention, as it has been for many other denominations, as well as civic organizations and and universities and right on down the line. Another issue they are facing is what to do about critical race theory. Now, this episode is not meant to get into critical race theory uh, itself, but it is important to note that the Southern Baptist Convention, many of the leaders in the SBC, many of the white leaders, have come out very strongly against critical race theory. And between you, me, and the podcast line, it's certainly because they don't understand it. It's probably also certainly because maybe they do understand it. Maybe they understand it threatens the supremacy that they enjoy so very much. Don't forget, supremacy in terms of power need not be uh, racially motivated, consciously speaking, right? We can imagine any number of rich, fat, happy Southern Baptist men, always men, enjoying privilege and enjoying power, and knowing somewhere deep down inside that if the sin of systemic racism is exposed and their kids and their grandkids are taught what that means for America's past, what it means for our present and for our future, they have an inkling that the power structures that they've depended on for so long are going to be some of the things that start to crumble as we do come to some kind of reckoning in this country in terms of institutional and systemic racism, let alone coming to terms with that within groups that call themselves Christian or groups that call themselves churches. But the article I was reading, I think it was from Cron, which is one of these, I forget which media group owns Cron, but it's an online uh, version of one major news consortium or another. Anyway, the article made the point that what you're going to see this week at the SBC in Nashville is not a fight between progressives and conservatives, but rather a fight between theological conservatives and ultra-conservatives. And I suppose the thing that stuck in my craw is this word conservative, because there's a narrative at play 
that is destructive, that is deceitful, uh, that serves a certain purpose in establishing and, and holding on to power. But it's not the true story of the history of the SBC or of American, American Christianity and certainly not of global Christianity. What we think of today as theologically conservative ideas or people we look to and say those are theological conservatives, they are not conservative in the sense of hearkening back to some tradition from 2,000 years ago. They are conservative insofar as they uphold a very narrow definition of what true faith and doctrine are supposed to be within the Christian community. And those definitions emerge when? At the end of the 19th and at the beginning of the 20th centuries, when so much was in flux. You're coming on the heels of the American Civil War, of the Industrial Revolution, of changing paradigms socially, changing political paradigms within the nation, and changing geopolitical paradigms globally. And within the American context, society is changing. And all of a sudden, you have a certain group of people who start to believe and start to, to make a big deal about the idea that with the onslaught of new scientific discoveries and we've discovered dinosaurs we've we've teased out theories of evolution and speciation we've had to contend with the politics that that stand downstream from thinkers like nietzsche we in many ways are anticipating having seen the carnage of the civil war we are anticipating the carnage to come in the first world war One of the things that groups of people start to do is they start to believe that the end is near. And so they calculate all the different times and places where Jesus will return. And of course, they're wrong. But more reliable than those predictions and those ideas and those fanciful hopes is, you know what? Relying on the Bible in good old plain English because the borrowed tradition which is not a spiritual or mystical tradition, but is an academic tradition. The borrowed tradition of rationalism as it pertains to social sciences tells us that just like we can observe empirical truth in nature and make scientific uh, theories and, and test them and then come up with scientific laws and watch them work, so too can we look at the writings of Holy Scripture and apply a sort of reason-centric, rational, dare I say, scientific approach to developing what we now call systematic theologies. See, Paul said very long ago that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than all people. And what fundamentalists did in the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, is take that idea and put it on steroids. And they begin to think, well, this world is so uncertain, and we're being our faith, we think, is being threatened by Darwin, by Nietzsche, by the carnage that we've seen in war. And by the way, by the social displacement, the economic displacement of the aftermath of that war, uh, which had to do with the movement of large groups of people, but also had everything to do with displacement caused by this by the um, industrial revolution, right? You also have changing gender roles, and it's interesting that progressive Christians were the ones behind women's suffrage, as I said a few minutes ago. But all of these things are in flux, and people are feeling attacked. 
And so a group of people decide that we must be able to use the Bible like a roadmap, like uh, like a manual. We must be able to use the Bible as a theological text or a, the- a set of observable, empirical, theological truths. Just like we can observe things in nature, and those are empirical truths, so too must we have something from God that will help us find true doctrine, because the stuff coming out of naturalism doesn't make sense to us, and it threatens our perceptions of reality and our place in the universe and our understanding of God. So, fundamentalist Christianity emerges, and it starts to sketch out these so-called fundamentals, and one of those fundamentals is, of course, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture and the the authority, if you will, uh, of Scripture. And those are building blocks that then people, very clever theologians, look to and say, "Well, if we've settled, if we've settled the question." of what the right hermeneutic is. In other words, if we have settled the question that the Bible is to be taken literally and to be believed literally, and it's the final word and it's an errand, if we've settled all that, now we can get about the business of making sense of our faith and our theology again. And so we will use our rational minds, we will use reason, we will use our intellects, and we will build these edifices of complicated systematic theology. Now, of course, I've said this before, the Bible itself doesn't make those claims for itself. It doesn't claim that it is able to be used in that way, nor can it. And I've talked a lot about that, so I won't go too far into that here. But what I'm really meaning to get at for the purposes of this bonus episode is that when we think about the Southern Baptist Convention convening this week in Nashville, and we frame it as a fight or as a showdown between uh, conservative people and ultra-conservative people, it's, it, it, it would behoove us to understand what we're really saying. The Southern Baptist is conservative only insofar as it relates to uh, a fealty to the fundamentalist philosophies and theologies that came out of that crucible of the late 19th early 20th centuries. So it's conservative in reference to something that is very new. In that sense, it's not conservative at all. And so when conservatives in the SBC talk about the takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention in the late 70s and early 80s, which coincided with the rise of the moral majority and the religious right and Jerry Falwell and those sorts of things, um, They frame it, the people who won that battle within the SBC, they frame it as the conservative resurgence. That's what they they call it. The people who are moderates, who are progressives, call it the conservative takeover. And I think most um, most honest observers would say it was a takeover. And you can read all about how it was done and where it came from and, and, and how it happened. But to call it a conservative resurgence is, is misleading because, again, that sort of makes us think, oh, well, this is a return back to true religion. This is a return to centuries-old doctrine. This is a return to something that's been true and real for Christians across time uh, for millennia. No, no. Theological, theological conservatism in the American context means fealty to very specific uh, theological ideas that emerged as responses to felt social and political and emotional needs in the wake of the Civil War and the Industrial Revolution and all the changing social milieus and contexts therein and thereof. So 
don't use the word conservative because it's not honest, it's not true, and it's not helpful. Call yourself what you are, a fundamentalist and evangelical, but don't say that you're an orthodox Christian or that you're a traditional Christian or that you're a conservative Christian. No. No, you are a specific kind of doctrinal Christian, and that's your right. The reckoning that the media is talking about that's supposed to happen in the SBC this week will be a reckoning in terms of who has power. Is it the conservatives, to use that word, or is it the ultra-conservatives? Will it be? Well, it will be. It will be white people. It will be white men. But how will they deal with the aftermath of their rejection of critical race theory? Because it's already caused deep divisions, and it's, it's already caused deep wounds among the many, many, many non-white congregations that make up the SBC as well. I read a, a statistic in one of these articles today that said if you look at the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which is a mainline church, it's not an evangelical church in this way of thinking about that word evangelical. That word evangelical has a different historic meaning for the ELCA. But that con- that denomination has, I believe, 9,000 congregations in the United States. The SBC has 10,000 congregations that are not white congregations that are non-Anglo uh, congregations, historically uh, black or, or other ki- ki- congregations. So there are more non-white SBC congregations than there are total number of ELCA congregations. So if the SBC loses 10,000 non-white congregations because the people who run the SBC, which are white men who are addicted to power who are addicted to the death spiral that they're locked in with the Republican Party in. Um, What's going to happen in the aftermath of them taking theological stances that suggest that, in their opinion anyway, black lives don't matter? That's one of the things that we'll watch for this week, those of us who are interested in this. I honestly don't really care what the SBC does. The SBC can go to hell in a handbasket as far as I'm concerned. Now, if they stop hurting people and if they make decisions that are different, then fine. That's wonderful. That's great. But they and their ilk have done so much damage for so long. I don't care, and I will shed no tears if that denomination ceases to exist. What I really care about are uh, the people who are being hurt by that denomination and by groups like it in ways that both offender and victim probably don't even realize. Sometimes, sometimes we are all guilty of refusing to see, what is it, from Mary Poppins, we can't see beyond the end of our nose. The people who run the SBC are not stupid people. I think that the blinders they wear are there by choice because they preserve their power structures. And that power is what gives them identity. I might be being too harsh. I might be making assumptions. I might not be being equitable or generous or equitable or generous or fair right now. And if that's the case, I apologize. But um, the things that that denomination has done, the things that the leadership of that denomination have done, have been dangerous, have been hurtful, and have, in my mind, set back the cause of the kingdom of God, the the true gospel message 
of Jesus uh, more so than they've helped. So if you care about what happens to the SBC this week, you can keep your eyes peeled to the news coming out of Nashville. But the thing I suppose I wanted to talk about today was how sick I am of this term conservative because it's not real, it's not true, it's not historic, and it's not theologically accurate. Deep breath, sigh. I would say the same thing, by the way, for the term that I use, progressive. It's not a good term. Somebody was yelling at me on Facebook. What's define progressive Christianity because I think it doesn't exist. Well, you know what? Progressive Christianity is like the probability cloud that we talked about in the last bonus episode. We talked about quantum reality and and how it relates to the cosmic Christ and, and what's going on when God incarnates in flesh and blood. Well, for my money, progressive Christians don't all agree. We don't all get along. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just like everybody else. We're no better. But what I said last time was that I think one of the things it means, at least for me, to be a progressive Christian is to be honest about our borrowed traditions and to be honest about our hermeneutics. And that's hard. That's hard for everybody. But I think it's necessary. I think there's no other way to go about a life of faith if you're not going to be honest about it. There's no reason for a life of faith if you're not going to be honest about it. Unless what you take from faith is the comfort you get from excluding others and from drawing lines around who's in and who's out. Look, I'm not here to say if you're doing that or not, but We all know people do. We don't have to just focus on the SBC or conservative or evangelical or fundamentalist groups. We can find these same things happening in all religious groups and all social groups. It's it's an indictment certainly of just how very broken we are and how unwilling all of us are to really take a good long look at ourselves, what we think, what we believe, what we champion, what we say. What we're willing to get behind or what we're willing to say to stay silent about anyway SBC I said you can go to hell I'll take that back I hope you make good choices because you influence a hell of a lot of people so I'll say a prayer for you this week thanks for listening to this bonus episode number six Have a good night or a good day or a good morning or whatever portion of the day this finds you in. Be well, be blessed, and we'll see you soon.